You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along, you can do so. There are Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. It's also printed for you on this piece of paper that somebody printed out on a, on a printing machine, I guess. Uh, you can feel free to do that. I do want to welcome you to RUF tonight. Uh, my name is Sean Slate, and I'm the pastor here at Redeemer, as Matt said. And I'm really thankful to have been invited uh, to come to RUF. I'm really actually really nervous about being here. <laughs> like Matt and I are flipping roles. I think he's nervous when he preaches at Redeemer. And I'm kind of anxious. Uh, I want to sit down right now. But anyway, it is good to be here. I love RUF. Uh, I became a Christian through the ministry of RUF at Clemson University. And then as Matt said, I went on to be the RUF campus minister at the University of Virginia for 10 years. And, uh, and then I also love RUF, especially here at the University of Tennessee, because y'all have cool sweatshirts, and uh, because my son, I don't know if any of you know William Slate, but he's my son, and uh, y'all have been good friends to him, and so thank you for welcoming, welcoming him into your community. Uh, I miss him. I hope some of you miss him as well, since he's studying abroad this semester. But anyway, it is good to be with you, and thanks for coming out tonight and braving the rain, because there are, I don't know, a million different things that you could be doing uh, tonight. For instance, you could be at home making Valentine cards uh, for your classmates and professors. Uh, You could be avoiding the rain by playing Fortnite with one another, or you could just be doing what you came to college to do, uh, hang out. Uh, But but you're not. uh, You're here, and I'm really glad that you are, so thanks for coming. Uh, You know, Matt asked me just to sort of keep going in this series that y'all are doing on the book of Judges, and uh, I hope y'all are enjoying this series because it's absolutely crazy. I think last week somebody got impaled with a a sword through his stomach and feces came out, and that's crazy, and the whole book, like that's actually nothing in light of what's about to come, and I love this book so much. And as you look at this book, this is a book that oftentimes people read and they think, this is why I have a hard time with Christianity, right? But when I read this book, I think, oh, Christianity's got to be true. I mean, because the crazy world that I feel like I live in, like, is the world that God engages with in this book that we call Judges. And so I'm really thankful for this. And the good news of the book of Judges is that God sees the crazy and he delights to meet each and every one of us in it. And so tonight we're just going to continue looking at this mess of a book as we look at this song uh, that is sung here in Judges chapter 5. So if you'd follow along with me, I'm going to read 1 through 11 and then 24 through 31. <clears throat> then, they, then, uh, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. 
In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit in rich carpets, and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Let's go down to verse 24. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. That's a pretty great chorus, isn't it? I mean, it repeats it like, between her feet, he sank. Uh, Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dye work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me now uh, for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, uh, it's, it's words like this that are difficult and words like this that are kind of sometimes hard to understand. But we are thankful that you're a God who isn't silent, nor are you hidden, but you delight to make yourself known, and you've done that in your word by your spirit, and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. And so now in these few moments, as we think about your word, we ask that we would see lovely things about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would assume uh, that a few of you have heard of this television show called The Office, uh, and uh, it's popular maybe a few years ago, but uh, you might remember that there's this episode where Kevin, who's kind of the large guy, maybe large like me, like Slate, right? He's large. <laughs> He's not quite as lanky as I am, but he has this, this chili that he loves, right? And he wants to bring the chili uh, to the office, and so you see him like carrying the chili into the into the office and as soon as he gets into the office like he spills it he just drops it everywhere and he goes in he's trying to clean it up and he's slipping in it and he's rolling around in it and he's trying to shovel it back into the pot with a manila envelope and uh that's kind of the image that i have of the book of judges right it's this absolute mess that's intended as a gift and uh tonight's passage 
is especially messy. And uh, I think what makes this passage incredibly crazy is that it's a song. What I just read is a song. You notice this in verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak. Now, could you imagine getting the family together? Hey, we're going to sing a song, you know, or gathering the church together and say, hey, let's sing uh, Judges chapter 5 together, everybody, right? And uh, as, you, as you look at this song, I mean, the violence of this song is like incredible. I mean, Eminem and Machine Gun Kelly had nothing, right, in their rap battle last year as violent as this. And you see it in verse 26, She set her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Right? I mean, this is the Bible. Uh, And so, uh, let me tell you what's going on here, right? It's awful violent, but let me tell you. So, Chapter 5 is a song that is sort of celebrating the historical narrative that happened in chapter 4. And so what happened is after the guy named Ehud uh, had died, the people of God forgot God again. right? And then when they forgot God, they turned away from Him and they began to pursue all the Canaanite gods once again. And the text tells us that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so because they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord, because they had turned away from God and began to pursue the Canaanite gods, God said, all right, fine, let's see how they'll treat you. And so the Lord then allowed this guy named Jabin, who was the king of the Canaanites, to enslave and oppress the people of Israel, the people of God, for 20 years. And at the end of that 20 years, the people, were they, they'd had enough. I mean, they were fed up, and so they are crying out to God once again, and they're begging Him to deliver them. And so God, in His grace and God, in His kindness, He hears their cries, He hears their lament, He hears them begging for deliverance. And so God then raises up a new judge, and He raises up this woman named Deborah. And Deborah then calls this guy named Barak to rise up and to take 10,000 soldiers with him and go to war against Jabin and Jabin's army, which was led by this general named Sisera. All right, there's a lot, but just bear with me. And so Barak then assembles the army of Israel down by the river called Kishon. And then when Sisera the Canaanite hears about this, he then gathers his army. And his army is a powerful army. They actually have 900 chariots. And so Sisera comes out with 900 chariots against all these foot soldiers. And then this battle ensues on this plain, right, at the bottom of of Mount Carmel there in the Kishon River Valley. And this battle goes on. And as the battle begins, it begins to rain. And it's just raining, it's pouring, the river begins to rise, the river begins to flood, then this floodplain becomes this mud pit. And then those 900 chariots that were coming out against God's people get stuck in the mud. And now Barak's army, right, sees that Sisera's army is stuck in the mud, and they go at them, and they begin to destroy them. Now Sisera, who's the bad general, sees that they're being destroyed. 
And so he jumps off of his chariot and he runs for his life and he runs all the way to this guy named Heber's tent. Right? There's, a, there's a quiz later. And so he runs to this tent of Heber. Now, who is Heber? Why does he run to Heber? Well, Heber was a friend of Jabin, who was the king of the Canaanites. And so Sisera's thinking, I need to hide, right? I need to find a friend. So he comes to this place thinking that he's found a friend. He seeks to hide, and Heber is gone. Heber's not home. Right? So I guess he knocks on the tent flap, and out comes Heber's wife named Jael. And Jael comes out and says, oh, hey, nice to see you. And she greets him. She welcomes him. She gives him some milk. She gives him a place to hide. And then she says, here, hide under here. And she puts a rug over him. And then he falls asleep, right? Tired from the battle, tired from the run away. And so as he's lying there, as he's asleep, Jael goes and she takes a tent peg and a hammer and she sneaks up on him and she drives the tent peg into his temple. And he goes down into the ground and he dies, who just saw that coming, right? I mean, could you imagine like taking a peg and hammering it through someone's temple? Their head kind of explodes, blood goes everywhere, and they're kind of stuck there, uh, dying in the ground. So finally, what happens, this is just what happened, right? And so finally, Barak, the commander of uh, Israel's army, who has been chasing Sisera, shows up at Jael's tent, and he's looking for right the general of the other army. And he shows up at the tent, and he says, have you seen Sisera? And Jael says, I think he's right there. And she escorts him over, and he sees this dead man lying in a pool of his own blood, kind of pinned to the ground. And this encouraged Israel. Right? And it encouraged Israel because their oppressor was now dead. And then they rise up against their oppressors. And God gives them victory. And then he gives rest to the land once again. Let's pray. Uh, so, uh, so what happens now is we come to chapter 5. And this is a story that puts that narrative uh, into the lore of the people of God, and they like place it in the hymnal. And so this is like hymn number 500 in the Israel hymn, uh, hymnal. And they start to sing this song about the destruction of the Canaanites and especially Sisera. And so what's happening is they're singing not just of destruction and judgment, but what they're singing of is their salvation. Like salvation is always messy. There is a judgment that must occur that frees up salvation. And so they're singing it. They're singing about this salvation. And as they sing this song, it really has two main parts. There are two main verses to this song. And the first verse is as they sing about their own need and their own weakness. And then the second verse is a verse that they begin to sing about their Savior. So we'll think about the song, we'll think about it in these two ways. We'll think about our need, and then we'll think about uh, our Savior. First, they sing about their need. I want you to notice that in verse 2, they sing, The leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly to bless the Lord. This is a quick little throwaway line, but it's incredibly important because it sets the stage. 
What it's saying is that God's people, and not only God's people, but God's leaders, have turned back to Yahweh. They have turned back to the Lord. And this is really significant because as you think about the pattern that runs through the entire book of Judges, it is a pattern of God's people turning away from Him to other gods. And what is happening here is that God's people are turning back. And they are turning back as they have found themselves oppressed and enslaved. And it had gotten so bad for the people of God that in verse 6 it says this, In the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. Villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? And the answer to that question, was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel, was no. God's people were unable to protect themselves. They were unable to deliver themselves or free themselves. And so in this song, they are singing about their need. They are singing about the oppression that they are under. They're singing about their need for God to deliver them. And I don't know if you necessarily hear their weakness, but as they're singing, they're singing about how the roads were too dangerous. Nobody went on the highways because they were too dangerous. You'd get robbed, you'd get mugged, you'd get killed, right? It's talking about the villages and how the villages weren't safe. And Israel's culture had become this idolatrous idolatrous culture and their entire society was in disintegration and families were fighting against families neighbors were fighting against neighbor and everyone in Israel was living a life of absolute abject fear and to make matters worse like they're being oppressed in this cruel manner by the Canaanites and they couldn't protect themselves they had no shields they had no spears And basically, as you think about their life, it was a life in which they lived completely in a space where they didn't know if they were safe or not. They lived every day in a dehumanizing way. Their dignity was gone. And to get a little glimpse of the oppression that was coming to God's people on a regular basis, look at what Sisera's mother is thinking in verse 28. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answered. Indeed, she answers herself. Had they not found and divided the spoil, a womb for every or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So what's happening here is that Sisera hasn't come home yet. And so his mother is beginning to worry. We know that he's dead. She doesn't know he's dead. Uh, And so she starts to worry about him. And she begins to comfort herself. And notice the way she comforts herself. She's like, oh, he's not come home yet because he has taken so much from the Israelites. He's taken all these great clothes. We're going to get this new wardrobe when he gets back. We're going to be rich. We're going to be powerful. And probably he's not back yet because, notice this, he's busy with a womb or two for every man. And so she begins to console herself saying, well, my son and his friends are late Because they're raping the women of Israel. 
Now, could you imagine a woman, a mother, celebrating her son raping another woman? Could you imagine a mother thinking these things? Now, this was the life of oppression that Israel was living under for 20 years. They were under constant threats of raids, of rape, of slavery, and death itself. And Israel was powerless to do anything about this. And this is what they're singing about. We're weak. We're vulnerable. We cannot save ourselves. Now, if we're honest about our own lives, uh, that's got to be a part of our song as well. We're We're weak. We're vulnerable. We cannot save ourselves. We are a powerless people. And as Christians, this is something that we have always, always confessed. It's something we've always admitted about ourselves, that we are weak and powerless and vulnerable. And that's why as Christians gather week after week, traditionally we confess our sins. And we confess our sins because we are people who have failed. We are people who've turned our backs on God over and over and over again, just like the Israelites who would run to God when we want something. And then we turn away and run away from Him when we have what we want. And confession is really just the admission that we need God to do something. We just need God to save us. And if we're honest, it's not just sort of like the spiritual condition we have. If we are honest and if we take a hard look at life, we are a vulnerable people. I mean, as hard as we try to control our circumstances, right, we cannot control the powers that are around us. And that's scary. Right? This is what drives uh, most of our country's fear about immigration, it's what drives our fears about other races and about nationalities. It's what drives our fear about the police. It's why many of you are afraid of your future. It's why people are afraid of Russia. It's why we're afraid of ISIS, of dating. It's why some of you are afraid of graduating. Because you have no control over all of these things. And like when you go for a job interview, like you'll interview and they're going to ask you all these vulnerable questions about your life. And you're going to answer them, and you don't get to hire yourself. They may or may not hire you. When you go out on a date, and like you take them to, I don't know, Lonesome Dove, and then you go get a smoothie, you know, for dessert, like you can't make her like you. Like it really depends on how well that smoothie was made, uh, you know? And, uh, you know, and, and as, as we think about our life, Like, we do all these things to protect ourselves, and we do a good job at protecting ourselves, right? We get our security systems and everything, and yet horrible things can still happen because we're vulnerable people. And even on a more spiritual level, we're vulnerable before God as well because no matter how much better we think we are than other people, God knows and sees everything about us. Like, there's nothing that we do that does not escape his gaze. And no matter how hard we try to keep things hidden, he knows it. He knows the thing that you won't talk about. He knows the thing that you won't share with anybody. He knows the thing that you're spending your life running away from. He knows these things. We are vulnerable before God. And as Christians, we admit this. 
And we not only admit it, we actually begin to sing about it. Because it's in our weakness that we begin to see the greatness of our Savior. And that leads to the second stanza of this song, We Sing of Our Savior. And I think this is really important. As Christians, we want to sing of our Savior, not of ourselves. So often as Christians, we have been busy singing about ourselves. And this is why most of our friends in the world think we're arrogant and judgmental. And this is why we lack compassion. It's why we despise sinners. It's why we dismiss people's pain and their frustration in life. Because we're busy singing about ourselves and thinking about how we might be better than other people rather than actually singing about our Savior. And sadly, I think that the deep reality of most of our hearts is that we think Christianity is going to be about becoming so good that we won't need Jesus anymore. And when you need Jesus no more, you need Christianity no more. And when you need Jesus no more, you're left with yourself. But that's not Christianity. Right? Christianity sings. And it delights in singing. That if God won't save me, I cannot be saved. And that's why Barack and Deborah are singing. They are singing of their weakness because it's true. And they are singing of their weakness in order to glorify the God who saves. I mean, think about this song in verse 3. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Eden, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. And as you listen to this song, right, this whole thing is about God suiting up for battle. And the hero of this song is not J.L. And the hero of the song is not Barak. The hero of the song is God. But what is amazing about this song is that even though God is the hero, He delights to include the vulnerable and the weak in His song. And so Barak, who is scared because he is scared of the battle that's coming, he obeys the Lord. And he goes into the battle even though he knows he will not receive the glory for the victory. Deborah, one of the, one of the few female prophets in the Bible, is lifted up. J.L., the Canaanite, who's a non-Israelite woman, who turns from her husband's wicked, evil ways and idolatrous ways, she becomes an instrument of salvation, right? Hammering a tent peg through a man's temple in order to save the people of God. And I think what is lovely in this song is that each of them had a part to play In God's great work of saving his people. Like he doesn't despise you. God doesn't despise your weakness. He invites you into his greatness. And he's inviting you too. You have a part to play in God's work in this world. No matter how weak you feel. No matter how powerless you have been. No matter how many years you felt like you have nothing to offer. 
God actually delights to include you. And I would assume that there are some of you who feel like you're not good enough. I would think that there's some of you who feel like you don't know the Bible well enough, that you're not good enough uh, morally or ethically, that you've made all these mistakes in your past, and God would want nothing to do with you. But what we see is that all you need to talk about is your weakness and His greatness. That's the story of the gospel. That when we are weak, He is strong. That in our sin, He is righteous. And that He gives all of His blessings to us. And what I want you to know is that, that God delights in you. And He delights to include you in the work that He is doing in this world. In his work, but, but His work often appears pretty weak. And that's one of the reasons why we often despise the work of Christianity, because it isn't always powerful and huge. When we look at the text, what we see is that God sent Barak and foot soldiers who had no shields and had no spears to take on 900 chariots. Right? The chariots were like tank, the tanks and the A-10s of the day. Right? This is like bringing a bullwhip uh, to a gunfight. And what God does over and over and over again is He works through weak things in order to magnify his strength. And listen to the way that they begin to sing of salvation. Verse 20. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. And so the irony here is that like there's this huge battle, but God's the one fighting. And he's fighting not with like lasers and lightsabers and meteors, but he's fighting with rain coming down out of the sky. And he defeats his enemies. And then what's even more ironic is that the strength of the Canaanites, which was their chariots, actually becomes their weakness because as rain comes down out of the sky and then the land becomes muddy, they get stuck. They get stuck in their own strength. Because God is fighting for his people. And I would imagine that you've seen this in many ways in your own life. That, that oftentimes it's not the strong who win, but it's the weak and the vulnerable who win. I mean, uh, you're in, I guess most of you are at the university. And so you think a lot about grades. And you think, if I just make all the right grades, then surely I'll get the job. And you interview for the job. And then that kid with the lower GPA, you know, gets the job. The kid who's never even taken calculus you know, doesn't even know a foreign language, you know, gets the job. Uh, or you think money's going to save you, and then the stock market crashes. Or you think being a player is going to make you desirable, and then the nice normal kid, you know, uh, gets the girl. Or you think that being smart is somehow going to save you, and then oftentimes, like, the solution to a problem is something that you kind of need to be a kid to figure out. Before I moved here, we lived in this beautiful ranch house that everybody coveted. It was white and small carport. But anyway, we lived in this, in our, uh, we had this, we had this toilet in our house. This isn't good. We're not going to feces here. Uh, so that was Matt last week with Ehud. But so we had this toilet and it was always running and it like bugged us so much. And so we, we would 
call out plumbers, and we had like four plumbers come out to check it out, and I have a master's degree, and my wife has a master's degree. She used to teach at Clemson University, and we're looking at this toilet, and we can't figure anything out, and so finally a plumber just says, you just got to replace the whole thing. We're never going to be able to fix this, and so we're on the inter- interwebs, you know, on the Amazon, and we're Googling, and all this sort of stuff, trying to figure out, we want the best toilet, you know, for the money, so... Uh, I'd never used this toilet. My wife always used it, so it must have been her who broke it, but that's beside the point. <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway, we're one night, like, it stops running, and everything sort of seems normal, and we're like, what has happened? Like, I guess we went, this is great. So we asked the kids, like, does anybody know what happened, like, to the toilet? Why is it working? And my youngest, my youngest daughter, Annabelle, at the time, she was eight years old, she said, oh, well, I heard the toilet running, so I just sort of looked at it, and I fixed it. And we were like, you fixed the toilet? This is amazing. And so she's like, yeah, look at this. So she brought us in the bathroom, and she took the top of the toilet off, and she said, see this little metal piece here? If you just bend it, it lifts this other thing, and then, like, it works like a real toilet. It's great. And here, here's the point. Uh, my daughter's a genius. Uh, but... But God delights to work through weak, vulnerable things. I mean, like master's degree, like plumbing apprenticeships, like all these things had come and they couldn't see what my daughter was able to see. And we sing of these things because we want to see more of it. We sing of our weakness because we want to see more of God's strength. And notice verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. The fact of the matter is it often feels as if God's enemies are the ones who are always going to be victorious. And it feels as if we, God's friends, are going to be the ones who are always failing. And he's saying, may your friends rise in your might. And this verse, verse 31, is pointing us on to the future towards the resurrection when we, his friends, will rise in his might. And this is why we, as God's people, love to sing the song of, of salvation. Because the song of salvation acknowledges that we can't win on our own. Because when death comes, it always defeats us. But the promise of God is that he will be victorious. Think about it, the powers Right of Canaan had risen up against Israel, and they rose up year after year after year after year. And you move on into the New Testament, and we see the Roman Empire and all of their power ruling over God's people, and ultimately them, along with the powerful religious establishment of the time, they set out to destroy Jesus. And in a sense, that's what they did. In a sense, they took God and they took Jesus. They nailed him to a cross. They watched him die. And as he died, they mocked him. And as he's dying, they're saying, surely you couldn't be God. Because if you were God, you wouldn't be on this cross. You wouldn't be dying. Surely if you were God, you would just come down off of the cross and show that you're powerful. But Jesus allows himself to die. And he goes down into the grave. He goes down into death to confront our greatest enemy, and he defeats it. 
And on the third day, He rises up from the dead. And through His resurrection, He assures us that all of His enemies will be defeated. And He assures us that even if the great enemy of death is to overtake you, He will defeat it for you. And He will lead you out of death into life. And this is really important because so much of our life we feel like we're losing. So much of our life we feel insignificant and unimportant. We feel powerless. We struggle with sin. We struggle with shame. We feel persecuted. We feel oppressed. And at some point, you will face death. And death is like Clemson University. He's undefeated. Uh, I don't know. That's stupid. Uh, But I I, should have stuck with my notes. Uh, I went for it, failed. Uh, But anyway, but But Jesus has defeated death, right? And what this is saying to us is that oppression will not win. Injustice will not win. Sin will not win. Death will not win. Because God always wins. And he delights to save the needy. And therefore, as God's people, we delight to sing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our Savior, and we confess that we are weak and needy people who cannot save ourselves, and we cannot even protect ourselves. And so we look to you as the living and true and good God to love and protect and preserve your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.